Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to A Musical Journey Like No Other, giving you an in-depth, invigorating, and exclusive look at the newest Smashing Pumpkins concept album, Autumn. This is 33 with William Patrick Corgan. This is the 20th step on our interstellar musical expedition. If it's your first time listening to 33, welcome to the podcast. If you've been with us since the very beginning, thanks for being fans. Thanks for tuning in. On this episode, we won't be having a world premiere of a song because we're listening to and analyzing the first single from Autumn. That's right, it's time to talk about Beguiled with Smashing Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan. If you haven't done so, you can check out the music video on the Smashing Pumpkins YouTube channel right now. We're also diving into classic tracks of the Billy Corgan catalog on this episode. We're listening to and enjoying the song Of a Broken Heart by Zwan from the 2003 album Mary Star of the Sea. We have so much to cover on this episode, including Billy's relationship with his father, dealing with his father's passing, creativity and its connection to death, and so much more. We're going to be going without a guest on this episode. Kyle Davis, we're just one week away from the first ever live NWA Power professional wrestling show on January 31st at the Knoxville Convention Center. Tickets are available at nwatix.com. I know we're all excited for that. If you haven't already got your tickets, come by, say hi to Joe, say hi to me, say hi to Billy. Also, make sure you like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it. iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, wherever. There's so many places. Also, go over to WPC33.com. Continue the conversation. You'll find playlists, lyrics, and more on the influence that makes Smashing Pumpkins music that you love. Let your fingers do the typing over to SmashingPumpkins.com for merch and info possibly about a major upcoming multi-day event that I am forbidden to talk about publicly one day soon. And until then, March 4th, Mexico City World is a Vampire Festival right around the corner. We will be there, will you? But enough about the plugs. It's the man, the myth, the legend, and the man that we're all here to grill, the Corgan of Corrigans, 
William Patrick Corrigan, what you got for us today? There's no way to answer that without sound effects. You know, it's like, pew, pew, pew. Burr, burr, burr. <laughs> uh, hello, everyone. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm still in the haze of, uh, of mourning, so uh, it's kind of good to talk, I will say. But yeah, I've been in my head a lot lately, so that's probably not a good thing. To quote my old therapist, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. <laughs> so it's good to talk to you and share. Uh, we're here to talk in segment one, to be all official, about uh, Beguiled. And actually, a little little news. I just sent out the set list to the band members this morning for the upcoming shows in Mexico and some other undisclosed locations. Also, I think Bottle Rock. Uh, what is it? It's uh, May 27th, something like that. Oh, my God. What a year. Anyway, <laughs> as you can see, I'm lost at sea. Welcome to the Lost at Sea podcast. Let's talk about Beguiled, because that's something that will moor me back, to use the analogy. Where were we last time? Uh, the kids had gone to—oh, no, we were in the Space Armada, right? We had the traumatic moment where shiny ship turned around, and June and her cohorts, thousands, went on past the Paralyon demarcation point and off tumbling into the sun— to certain death, Kyle bemoaning my dramatic device in this particular moment in the musical. And then, of course, last we saw uh, Nighthawk and Osira and Ruby. They had gone to Dr. Aisha's house where he took them in by night, knowing they were on the run. So here we are. We're back to Dr. Aisha's house. It's the morning. The kids are up. They're trying to figure out what to do. They don't plan on staying at Dr. Aisha's house. They feel like they've got to keep moving. They're paranoid. They know that the X and I, the governmental authority, is after them. They're in kind of Dr. Aisha's, what do you call these people, um, prepper? He's kind of a prepper. He's kind of got a prepper control room. Yeah, he's a doomsday prepper. So doomsday uh, being prepper, an old hippie, yeah. he's got his uh, living room fashioned with old 80s, you know, Atari-level monitors uh, with cameras all over the property basically showing, uh, you know, he's, he's getting ready for doomsday. And so they're in the living room. They're preparing— uh, they're trying to make a plan of when to leave. And this is when Dr. Ace drops the bomb in them saying, uh, you probably shouldn't leave. Osiris says, why? Well, while you guys were asleep, I went ahead and called the police. I called the X and I. And though you can't see them on camera, they're just out of camera range. Yeah, they're, uh, they're out there waiting for you. Um, of course, Nighthawk and Osiris feel completely betrayed. Ruby being a robot is impassive, taking in the information. Dr. H basically uses this song to explain, uh, voicing, in essence, the propaganda of the X and I, that there is no new idea to be had. There is no revolution to be had. Osiris' pipe dream of changing the world is a pipe dream. And so Dr. H took it upon himself, thinking he's help, being helpful, basically saying, yeah, I talked all that hippie crap to you last night, but in thinking about it, I realized that those days are gone. My days were the good old days. Your days are no days. And so it's best you just give yourself up to the X and I, if you could. I am obviously going through things in my life, so I'm just picking up on things that I probably aren't here. Dr. H, they have faith in him. He betrays them. We have the whole thing where the ships, they're going in space. They're going to their demise, but Shiny turns around. He's going to be okay. I'm picking up on narratives of when you believe in somebody, they might not exactly lead you to a better place that you almost have to believe in yourself so nobody can betray you. And See, that's a down. wonderful... That's just a wonderful observation, but there's two different versions of your observation. Let's take the more obvious version, which is Dr. H's betrayal. 
Dr. H assumes he understands all the motivations of these children. In essence, he's projecting himself on them, saying, I was like you, and yeah, I believed in the revolution, man, comma, but uh, that shiz is over, and, uh, you know, these people, you know, the X and I, they got this whole thing wrapped up with their fancy computers and GPSs, and there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide, and so I can let you guys out of here, and you're going to get killed somewhere down the line, or imprisoned and tortured, or I can just turn you over. And they gave me assurances, the governmental authorities, they promised me up and down that you're going to be well taken care of and get a chance and that you won't spend the rest of your life in prison. So I've actually done you a good turn. See, I've even though I'm completely perverting the values that I've extolled in public and privately all these years, I'm now a hippie sellout. And I'm okay with that because I have a justification. And without pointing fingers, uh, there have been times where the hippies are more than willing to sell out to corporatocracy or technocracy because it suits some other sort of perverted version of freedom, even though these are the very people that told us what freedom was. So others know better for you than you know by yourself. Yeah, it's a little bit self-serving. I mean, we've, we've all had that speech, whether it's from our parents or from our grandparents, like, you don't understand. And the answer is, well, the true answer is we really don't understand. When my grandparents sat there and talked about World War II, I really couldn't fathom that level of death and destruction. And existential dread that they were going through. So their culture now in hindsight, now that I'm older, makes complete sense to me. But at the time I was like, oh, they're just all so uptight. Who cares about the war? The war's 40 years ago. Who cares? Move on. You know, let's see what Bono's doing. You know what I mean? Like, that's very typical. That's every youthful generation. So there's no shade in that, but that's sort of how it rolls. But there is that thing where the generation, the older generation sits there and tells you, you don't understand and blah, 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 and we got it all sorted out. And the answer is nobody's got it sorted out. You know, I think there is a reason that many artists peak in their late 20s and early 30s because they're still young enough to sort of believe and they're not too old to not believe. (laughs) You know, they're on that sort of fission point where they haven't been overly corrupted by disappointment and cynicism because if you look at the world generally as it's posited to us, And right now in the news is the World Economic Forum in Davos, where the elites of the world are basically telling the world how the world's going to be coming up, whether or not we want it or not. There's that sort of thing of like, you know, we've got it all sort of figured out. Don't worry about it. And human nature basically, you know, youth says, no, you don't, because if you did, the world would look safe and, and inviting and not hostile and scary to me. So most most of the way the world is controlled is through fear, uh, fear, fear and cynicism. It isn't through hope and enlightenment. Most of our energy, much of our treasure is spent in defense and creating new missiles and things like this. I mean, the number one topic of 2022 was, was the war in Ukraine. Whose side and who's with who and should you support and not and da-da-da and how is this all going on right? At the root of it is, is a level of cynicism. Now, the, the controllers of the world step in and they say, well, we have to be cynical. We have to protect. But if you're looking at it through the eyes of a child, which I was once a child, you kind of go, why is this mess so messy? Because it should, you guys should have figured this out by now. And that's where that energy comes from. So to the other idea of betrayal, which you touched on, let me ask you a question. How is Shiny betrayed June in this particular instance? He didn't even know she existed for the most part, unless I have faith that he has some grand. So who is she being betrayed by? Around him. 
her own beliefs go. and her own wants from somebody else and putting that expectation on somebody that you could never expect. But isn't to that the to. fruit of most betrayal? Ugh, right now. I sound what well, we're talking about well, off camera. Okay, but I sound cynical <laughs> when I say that, but that's the root of most betrayal. Most betrayal is rooted in the idea that, hey, I don't need you anymore. <laughs> Sorry, get out of the way. Most of my betrayals to people in public have been rooted on the idea like, well, I'm not dealing with you anymore and, uh, and vice versa, right? Sorry, I just got sad for No, what I'm saying is, is most of the world operates in a material frame, but the true nature of life is spiritual, whether or not you believe in God. And I'll leave it right there for people to kind of work their way through that. Okay, so back to the story, because there is another beat to this thing. So what happens is Nighthawk being, you know, the less idealistic party of the three, Ruby, of course, is a robot. Ruby's not really thinking about mortality. Nighthawk decides against Osiris' wishes, and in accordance with Dr. Aish's suggestion, uh, Nighthawk decides that he's going to give himself up. So before anybody has a chance to stop him, he's going out the door with his hands up, surrendering to the X and I. He walks around the building into a particular corner, and like I said, if you looked at all the monitors in Dr. Aish's study, there was nothing to see. The, this is the movie in my mind. In a long-range camera, there's nobody. Now you see from the right, here comes Nighthawk. He's walking forward with his hands, and here comes the X and I. Well, the X and I doesn't realize because they're behind the building. They don't think they can be seen. And the minute that—sorry, uh, my children are screaming if you can hear that, for reasons of which I have nothing to do with, obviously. As Nighthawk proceeds forward, surrendering himself, Osira watches with horror, as does Dr. Aish watches with horror as Nighthawk steps forward to the X and I, they basically assassinate him on the spot. So that is what this song is about. In storyline. That's, yeah, the that's lyric, so heavy. The lyric is from the point of view of Dr. Aish and the X and I's propaganda. You, it's kind of, you can imagine both forces singing the lyric. It's the idea of like, you just got to trust the man, man, because uh, we know better. So the lyric, and I've talked about this in a few interviews, outside of this forum, uh, return the faith is not return the faith to God. Return the faith is return the faith to the institutional structure that's got it all sorted out. We got it. You just, you stick your, stick, stick your nose back in your iPad and your, your little white cube that you live in and just live on. And if you look at, and this, this is born of some data that I've seen, particularly in the last 10 years, particularly with Gen Z, there is a greater interest than I've ever seen in my life of that particular generation being okay with barren, small apartments, very austere living conditions, and as long as they have access to technology and they're all excited about neural nets and things like that, well, that's their, that is, their life is half digital, half real. And hence the talk about universal basic income and trying to move the workforce. Now somebody's crying. Uh, moving the, the workforce from a an, a, a an industrial society to a post-industrial society where workers aren't really needed. The robots are going to take over, and we got to figure out what to do with all these people, so we might as well keep them entertained by being in the metaverse. I'm happy that we finally found out where Beguiled falls into all this after enjoying the track and hearing it and being the first single from the album. So thank you for giving us the context that we did not know was there all along. Can you guys hear the screaming? That's what I want. <laughs> oh, I could hear the screaming in the background. I, yes, we can. I like it, though. Yes, we can. Howard puts our shows together, friends, yeah. and uh, we'll see how Howard cuts, cuts around the screaming and the crying. 
Oh, oh, he'll keep it in. (laughs) What better way to leave than the beautiful sound of my children's tears? When we come back, it'll not be the world premiere Beguiled, but a revisit of Beguiled. You're listening to 33 Podcast with William Patrick Corkin. Goodbye. Now available for pre-order at MadamZuzus.com. The autographed 4LP box set of Autumn, the new album by the Smashing Pumpkin. This 4LP colored vinyl pressing is limited to 1,333 units and will be machine numbered and autographed by the Smashing Pumpkins. Billy Corrigan, Jimmy Chamberlain, James Eha, and Jeff Schroeder. The limited edition box set includes the three-act, 33-song rock opera that is Autumn and... 10 exclusive unreleased songs over the course of five seven-inch singles that will not be available for streaming or found anywhere else. Go to MadamZuzus.com to pre-order today. Free shipping in the USA. Three-unit limit for order. Pre-order will ship after April 21st, 2023. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.
Welcome back to the 33 Podcast, friends. William Patrick Corgan here, your intrepid guide, as we dive into Beguiled. Yes, Beguiled. Where did it come from? I do not know. All I know is, whatever this tempo is, slow and grinding as it is, we never change the tempo, which is very, very rare in Smashing Pumpkins World. Usually we start at 92 and then 96 and 104. It just kind of keeps creeping up because as goes tempo. You see, the kids are still crying. <laughs> it just makes me so sad. I'm sure the problem will go away. Anyway, slow, grinding, return the faith to Beguiled. <laughs>
Welcome back, music fans. You just listened to the hit single from Autumn, Beguiled. That song absolutely rocks. And Billy, we were talking a little earlier, and we want to talk a little bit about the the cycles of creativity and what's going on in your mind and how things can be created, especially in the face of of tragedy and death. You want to go into that? Yeah, that's a, that's a sort of long, deep sea to jump into. I've been there many times, uh, most notably after my mother died and I was working on the album Adore. I oftentimes pointed to the fact that in that same period, I'd gotten a divorce. I um, lost my mother and Jimmy had left the band. So it was a lot of loss in a particular period of time. And in this period of my life, as these cycles run, although it's not really about me, my father has passed away in the last year. And of course, my close friend, Lisa. So I've spent a lot of time reviewing, I guess, and trying to write a new album, sort of like, well, what am I writing for? What do I have to say? Do I have anything new to say? You talk to any artist, I mean, this this is pretty normal stuff, but it's not stuff you talk about a lot in public, which is, I guess, why I'm interested in talking about it here, because it's sort of like staring into an abyss. Um, Nietzsche, of course, used to say, be careful if you stare into the abyss, because the abyss might stare back into you. I think I've quoted that here on the podcast, and it is one of those admonitions that I sort of look at in life. You know, creativity is a weird thing, and I think this is why many people shirk from pure creativity because it requires something of you that's greater than your sort of normal daily self. You know, I have a good life, obviously very busy, have lots of distractions, tea houses, wrestling companies, good friends, and even this podcast. And yet when I find myself alone, as I did when I first started this crazy journey in my bedroom back in Glendale Heights, Illinois, you know, there's that moment where you're sort of sitting there with a guitar and you're like, I have absolutely nothing to say. And why does anyone care about me? And I'm not talking like, woe is me, wah, wah, wah. I'm talking about you just sort of hit this weird wall where you think like, geez, I just, have I already said it? Or do I have the thing to say it? When I was young, it was very much like every idea I had seemed to pale in comparison to my heroes. And then, of course, if I take anything to my father, my father would just kind of wipe it away with a wave of his hand and say, you know, you ain't got it, kid. So why I stuck with it is sort of beyond me. I think I sort of focused on the idea of survival. I used a negative thing, which is I must survive. So I attached negative survival instinct to I must figure out how to write a good song. And through the various incarnations of The Marked and then the early days of The Pumpkins, I somehow figured out something that felt novel or unique. And uh, obviously there was an audience out there was attracted to it. But why an audience was being attracted to it, I was also being attacked which sort of looped back into a strange sensation of like, okay, well, this isn't good enough. I don't really know what that means, even after all these years. Because sitting on the bed that I'm sitting next to now, um, I go through that exact same sensation all these years later, 400 songs later, like, geez, like, it's just not good enough, you know? And good enough against what? Like, whole lot of love or chair rock or what, what, what's the standard? That's the general meditation I'm in if you want to ask any questions. Otherwise, I'll just kind of ramble on in my... No, I, I do, because I want to go back a second here. Why was your father so hard on you? You know, he um, he had different takes on it. And my father was sociopathic, so <laughs> I don't know how much stock we can place in them, but certainly we can find clues in, in what he said. One version was, uh, I was trying to save you from the maw of capitalism or something, you know, like... Basically, you wouldn't make it in the music business, so by keeping you from failing in it, I somehow was saving you from something terrible. In other times, I don't think he thought I had any particular special talent. I mean that musically. My father, I think I might have said this before, 
My father was very harsh about music. He had very strong opinions. So to rate up to his heroes, which were great, he just thought, oh, my kid's not even going to come close. And of course, he didn't really understand what was going on musically. And look, I'm somebody who doesn't mind talking about this type of stuff in transparency. If you look at the great standards of songs written in the 30s, 40s, and 50s compared to a modern pop song, I mean, there's no comparison in terms of musicology, meaning that the level of sophistication in a song between 1930 and 1960 was pretty, pretty high. If you're talking about sort of the Frank Sinatra type of Cole Porter, Gershwin songbook type stuff. Wild Thing, which is one of the greatest songs ever written, you know, is is hardly Gershwin. Um, there's something beautiful about primitive rock and roll, and that's something that the Kinks seized on from the Trogs, and, and the Who stole it from the Kinks, and here we are. So that's all fine and good, and I don't have a problem with the good old-fashioned rock and roll. I mean, I've written some really good stupid songs in my life, too, Bullet with Butterfly Wings being uh, an obvious example. In terms of sophistication, I don't think my father understood what the 80s, 90s music of New Wave was in comparison to things that he'd grown up on, even if it was pure Albert King blues. And I guess a third iteration would have been something along the lines of like, they did it to me, so I'm going to do it to you. Uh, Let's call it parenting that should have never been there, but somehow was there in his generation, and it was just passed on as a sort of an excuse or a way of doing business. On that note, you know, some people just always think it, it, some people project, maybe he felt he never could attain that level and that he was so insecure about that, that he put that on you because he didn't want you to feel the exact same way he did. Have you ever kind of thought about that? Well, he said that, and it does sound coming out of your mouth like a valid thing to consider. But honestly, I don't, and I've spent some time thinking about it through the years. I don't really buy it. I don't really buy it. Do you think it was, if you fail, it's a reflection on his failure as a father and as a I don't think he cared enough about me <laughs> to, to go that deep. No. Really? I think my father looked at the world as him against the world. If that sounds familiar in me, well, then I got it from him. Or it's a Corrigan thing, because it has been pointed out. It's something that sort of seems to resonate in that side of the family. How can I put it without sounding like I'm insane? Every family feels that it has something unique, and it should. That's part of the system of a family. Like, we got to kind of hang together to get across the, you know, the pick your family name, you know, the Feinsteins or the Goodmans or the, or the, you know, Alcazars. You know what I mean? Like, every family should have sort of pride in what they bring to the table. For some reason, my family didn't have that. And it was both sides of the family. And I can't go too deep into it without going into an hour dissertation about my family lineage. But on both my mother's side of the family and my father's side of the family, if you want to call a family a sort of a form of system, both systems were completely broken. So the idea that there was any pride in the family gift or family's gifts, there was none. It was sort of like the opposite, which is like who we are, which is sensitive and smart and sort of shadowy, if you want to be occultic about it, shadowy in the intuitive arts, meaning we have a certain particular creative sensitivity, not just sensitivity like, ooh, that hurts. I got that from both my parents, and that is in both family lines. But it wasn't like it was dealt with with pride, like, you know, we're sensitive and that's a good thing. We're smarter and that's a good thing. It was like, no, we're sensitive and smart and that's a bad thing. That's why we get crushed in this world. That's why the world hates us or picks on us. 
And so if you want to sort of do the DNA chart over to me, then voice that into the world, you can see why I would react the way that I did, because it was sort of like, oh, here's what they warned me about. <laughs> this, is, this is what happens to people like me in my family. We just get crushed for sticking our neck out. With such a nihilistic view, though, I would feel that other members of your family, if that's sort of like ingrained in the, the structure of it, I could see so many family members, especially when they become aged, just leaving that and just trying to separate from that to try to find more positivity and more support because there's the family you're born into and the family that you can create on your own, whether it's through friendships and whatnot. But it just seems like if you, it, once you come to the point where you realize that that's what it is being fed to you as a, as a child and as a young adult, I feel like so many people would want to just leave that. Well, this is something I've talked about when I was doing sort of uh, Instagram chats for a while. The cycle of trauma, you tend to attract people who are similarly traumatized as you or sort of reflectively traumatized. In essence, victims look for victimizers and vice versa and stuff like that. You know, that's all sort of fine and good in the milieu of human life, like who you pick and why it all goes wrong and even stuff we joke about here with Kyle. But when you talk about taking that sort of resonant philosophical energy into the world, having success with portraying who you are in a sensitive and unique way, and then getting sort of hit upside the head with verbal baseball bats, and then ultimately, in terms of my generation, bullied, um, which I don't have a problem using that word. I mean, I was absolutely bullied, and even at times I'm still bullied. You know, it doesn't sort of sort of tell you, oh, this is what you've learned is wrong, it's almost the weird confirmation of the reverse. What you've learned about being sensitive and not sticking your neck out is right. So let's go back to the moment of creation, sitting on a bed with a, an acoustic guitar. Somehow I've got to sort of skip these mental hurdles to get to a place of trust that this version won't crush me anew. And one thing I think that dovetails, and it's cool, it certainly was cool to hear you say it, you know, the hit from... Uh, Autumn Beguiled, and it is a hit. I mean, it is a it is a top ten active rock hit, which is a big big deal for a band. You know, it are long in the toothness. So here we are, and I feel those uh, feelings kind of encroaching back up. You know, I love the analogy in spiritual terms that karma is a stain that you try to continually wash out of the white cloth of your soul or something. So I find myself sort of meditating on these things, like, why am I still thinking about these things? Why am I falling back into this trap of thinking, ah, oh, you know, to heck with it. Why bother? I mean, I literally have friends, and I, I don't think anybody means wrong, and it might even come out of your guys' mouths. Hey, you're just putting out 33 songs. Why are you back in the studio? Why are you working so hard? Da, da, da. It's like, it's not really what makes me tick, you know? But I get it, like I get it in terms of material construct, like, oh my God, you know, slow down, you know, smell the roses type of thing. So I don't know where that goes other than there's some connection there between meditating on loss, which in this case, I've been meditating a lot on the loss of my father. I think finally after a year, I'm sort of finally ready to open that particular door. And if anything, anybody knows anything about my relationship with my father, even the things I've indicated here... It's a complicated subject, and I don't expect resolution in that particular field anytime soon. So I sort of view it as an attic. I got to kind of go up and poke around in every once in a while. As far as my friend Lisa, I mean, that's still something I'm sort of grappling with because 
I really haven't made a lot of close friends in this life, people that really open themselves to me. And then in return, I open myself to them in a way that didn't have any sort of deeper expectation other than, hey, you know, we're kind of in this together, however loosely that needs to be defined. And so when you lose one of those people, I mean, it really hits you because you're like, well, I'm not going to find another one like that. And in her case, you're certainly not going to find another one like that. I don't know if that makes any sense the way I'm sort of teeing it up. I know there's another gear there I want to get to, but it may take a question to get me there. Well, no, and and I think where you're at in this position of finding somebody that is a friend of yours that is completely selfless, it's not like there's any sort of transactional part of the relationship where I want to be a part or I want to be friends with Billy Corgan because, you know, I could get this, that, or the other thing, even if it's just spending time with you and enjoying your, your space and enjoying your company. But to find somebody that you connect with on such a different level that I don't know there's that many humans on earth that you can connect with that level because of where Lisa Marie Presley came from and where she was in her life and where you were in your life. I just don't know if it's even possible to make those connections with other people because you're so special and so individualized. So it makes it even harder when that person's gone, knowing that, you know, it's you're never going to find another person so unique like that and with the connection to you. Well, that's beautifully said. And I think that's part of the loneliness that comes with it. And I'm not saying this again in a sort of woe is me. It's just, you know, it's not a lot of people you can relate to your experiences with. With some of my public controversies through the years, I like to point out that it's the public part of the controversy that actually sort of fuels it. I mean, usually the beef that's going on between me and some other is actually pretty not very important. It's sort of the fuel of the public thing. You know, you're sort of, you get a bird's eye view into some sort of calamity. When you're dealing with it on a private level, well, then it's sort of, again, it's sort of, a, it's almost the reverse. It's intense in a different way. It's like, you feel like, geez, at least this person understands. They don't have to understand in the specific. They just sort of understand the context that you say things in. I mean, even here, and I, you know, I generally trust that people listening to this podcast have some general knowledge of why I'm here talking, you know, I couch my words because, you know, through years of public battle, you're like, well, if I say this over this line, that'll be viewed as arrogant. And if I say this over this line, it'll sound like I'm crying crocodile tears. And you end up having to kind of constantly sort of squeeze yourself into something that sort of flies for public consumption. You know, when I fantasize about the end of this musical journey, and when I say that, it doesn't mean I don't want to make music. It means I just don't want to be a public person anymore. Part of the fantasy is I just don't have to sort of watch my P's and Q's. And, and I'm, not, I'm not sort of stumbling into woke worry. I'm just talking about the idea that there's a private version of yourself and a public version of yourself. And there should be a public version of yourself and a private version. I don't want to know everything that goes on in Joe and Kyle's bedrooms and stuff like that. I mean, there is that separation of church and state that's necessary. I'm talking about your natural personality, which is pretty close in this case to my public personality. But even then, I still have to sort of twist around. Anyway, I'm not poo-pooing the subject. I just think it's not that interesting in this context. I think the creative aspect is much more interesting. But I, I think what you said sort of sent me off on that. So I'm blaming you. That's what I'm doing. That's fine. And then we can shift gears and go back to creativity. And I find, you know, there are certain things that trigger in my life 
instances where I become more creative and I have more thoughts. And it could be something as simple as just running water and being in a shower and having it cascade over me. Somehow, for some reason, that triggers something in me. I've caught myself to the point to where I'm in there and I'm having so many thoughts about so many things and coming up with different ideas to where the, the water heater runs out of hot water and I'm standing in a cold shower thinking of things. And so I find that that's like one of those triggers for it. And I'm wondering what sort of, what kind of triggers your creativity into jump starting that, into having thoughts, into going into music. Like what's sort of your muse that kind of helps kickstart the, the, the machine? That's a fantastic question. I was just writing about it in my journal yesterday because I think for me, after so many years of writing, the act of writing has a sort of level of perversity to it. And I don't mean in a sexual way. I mean, it's sort of like the song is so, let me put it this way. I treat all my songs pretty equally, but at some point there is this sort of value attached, like this one's a 10 and this one's a one and and 10 being better than one and all that stuff. You know, it's a hit song. It's not a hit song. No one cares. As the guy I was in business with at the last situation said to me, like, look, I look at your streaming numbers and I know that most of the people aren't listening to a lot of these songs and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, so I'm not supposed to do them because people aren't listening. (laughs) Such a weird, right? It goes back to that sociopathic thing of cutting yourself off before you even have an act of creativity. I do think that I have come to some general conclusion because after coming out of autumn, which now we're in the release period, but I mean, I'm, you know, my brain's long past it. I generally assumed I'd like, oh, I'll go back to writing about myself. But then I find myself thinking like, well, who is that? I mean, he's not very interesting. So I have wound around that I do need some conceptual base. And so the stuff I'm working on right now, I am looking for some sort of conceptual triggers, to use your word. And I do have some, um, nothing I would be at liberty to talk about here, but I have sort of this very interesting mental set of images that I was able to arrive at through a lot of journaling and sort of just letting my mind kind of run free. So the, the normal methodology, and this might be boring or this might be interesting people, I don't know. The normal methodology is as soon as I wake up in the morning, I grab a guitar and I just start playing. Last few days, I've played about three hours just continuously. I'll put on something to listen to. That might sound weird, but something about the distraction sort of kind of allows me to kind of fumble around the guitar and not pay too much attention. In essence, almost removes one part of my brain to not be in the judgmental aspect and just kind of play and noodle around until something takes my attention away from what I'm listening to and puts it back on the guitar. Um, And that's generally how I've been developing ideas. And that's not too dissimilar from the way I've traditionally done it over the last 30 years, something akin to that. But as far as the trigger to creativity, that's, that's really interesting. When I write poetry or lyric, just free verse, it seems to come out of nowhere. It will usually be sensorily triggered, like the sound, a smell, a, a thought. Uh, one lines one line will trigger a whole flood of thoughts that I wasn't even having when the one line triggered. It's like there's there's something behind a door and the door opens and all this stuff comes tumbling out. Musically, it seems to be different, and I think that's where it becomes kind of perverse because psychologically, I think I'm so damaged from so many years of producers and expectations and the shadow of the band and all this stuff that it's very hard for me to just get into a place of like no expectation. In fact. Um, when I started this most recent cycle, Jimmy and I spent a few weeks in Nashville recording drums. We didn't quite get all the songs that we wanted, so we talked about it after we got back to Chicago and I decided to write some more. So I'm in another writing phase. 
And I kind of started on a new spur and wasn't really happy with what I was getting. And it was almost when I gave up and I was like, okay, I'm just going to write whatever comes out of me. I don't care if it has nothing to do with the Smashing Pumpkins or the, the Smashing Pumpkins rock and roll album that I'm allegedly making. Then suddenly I started writing all this different stuff that isn't like anything that I was working on for the last year. That's more of an intuitive gift. And I guess that's where you got to get intellect out of the way. It's hard because it's such so oops, blurry in there. It seems like it's so difficult to find those lanes, but it also seems like it's like a, the, the river of creativity is going to run into those moments and those obstacles that will force it to turn in certain directions, whether it's, you know, the confinements of hitting the producers or what even is going on in your family life, or even stuff like tragedies that might inspire something else in you. Like we've seen, you know, recently with the, the deaths that you're dealing with, with the death of your father, with dealing with Lisa's recent passing and things like that. And, and it forces a shift but might not possibly be a, a negative shift in the way the creativity goes. It's just going a different way that wasn't expected, but could still turn out to be something that can be beautiful. Right. Well, it's sort of like staring in a mirror and looking at your naked body. Like, what is the good version of the critique and what is the negative version of the critique? So that's what I hear when you're talking about the things that sort of knock you around like a pinball, which aren't necessarily bad. I remember when we were working on Disarm in the studio Butch Vig said, it doesn't really have an ending. And I said, well, all I've got is the same thing over and over again. And he said, well, why don't you kind of flip the chords around? And I was like, huh? And I flipped the chords around and that's the ending. So that's the positive version of somebody kind of knocking into you saying, hey, are you sure this is what you want? Looking in the mirror and saying, oh, I look terrible and I'm so awful and I, I can never eat a muffin again in my life. And you know what I mean? Like that's the, so, but I'm saying the creative version of that in those three hours of playing the guitar the different voices that float in and out, the different negative. And sometimes those negative things can be positive. And one would think that the, the more you do something, the easier it would get. But with the history you've had, and as you said, the voices coming in, your experience of success, with failure, the creative process, the things that drive you, at a certain point, it really is such a mishmash of things that it's got to be hard sometimes to be like, this is my career. This is what I do. I'm passionate about music. I create music. I write music. But at the same time, it's my job, so I have to do it. It's like when we do wrestling. There's points where I'm sure you're like, I have to write a television program today, not just because I want to, but because it needs to happen. So that's got to be kind of a challenge at times. You're driving forces of, I'm going against the grain, and this can't naturally happen. It has to happen just because it needs to. Well, the only thing I would add to what you're saying is I actually don't have to work anymore. I'm, I reached a point of maturity and fiscal stability where I really don't have to work. So that's part of the equation. It's not a huge part of the equation. The other thing I would say, and, and um, I think this is a good way to wrap up this dissertation on death and creativity, if that, <laughs> death from above, to quote one of my songs. In my mind, my creativity is sort of like the Willy Wonka machine, you know, that, you know, and like out pops a weird piece of candy at the end. Because through the years, you know, there's the nice version and the not nice version of, let's say, you're battling a particular musician or a particular set of musicians, and you could pick any period of my musical life. Everybody kind of has their own take on the Willy Wonka machine. You know, like, wouldn't it be better if you cut this part off? Or wouldn't it be better if, you know, it only had three wheels instead of seven? Or, you know what I mean? You get into that weird kind of thing of like, everybody wants to tell a, a baseball player to hit a home run. When I was young, I was more open to that sort of criticism on the Willy Wonka thing, because I was like, yeah, maybe they got a good point. And certainly there were producers that came along that had better takes on it. But at the end of the day, if I was to draw a straight line from 
young William Patrick Corrigan on a bed at 18 to a still young William Patrick Corrigan on a bed at 55, the Willy Wonka machine looks kind of pretty much the same. And what I mean by saying that is, at the end of the day, you just kind of got to go with your own deal, however strange that it is. You can mechanize it, you can weaponize it, you can be cynical about it, you can feel that you know you need to input <laughs> more drugs or Rice Krispies into the Willy Wonka machine. But at the end of the day, the only thing that anybody cares about, as I've learned in public life over 30 years, is most people, and I'm talking 99.8% of the world, doesn't care about what goes into the Willy Wonka machine, what the Willy Wonka machine does while it's gurgling and burbling. They only care about the little piece of confectionery candy that comes out at the end. And then, even then, they reserve the right to say, this is worthless. So, that process, however strange that it is and whatever inputs that go into it, at the end of the day, I'm judged, and I use that word with a capital J, on whether or not I can create a piece of interesting candy. And where the lines have always been drawn through the years with different bandmates has been, I'll put my Willy Wonka machine up against your Willy Wonka machine because my Willy Wonka machine has produced pieces of candy that people are still interested in. Whereas maybe in your case, not so much. Trust me when I say, and I'm talking about anybody I was ever in a band with, I wish their Willy Wonka machine was as good as mine because it would have taken a lot of pressure off of me. And I think the spoils would have been better to divide and there would have been less heat on, well, why is it your Willy Wonka machine? <laughs> you know. And at some point I would just kind of throw up my hands and say, I can't explain to you why I'm a weirdo. I can't tell you the genetic sort of maelstrom that created the mess that is me. One quick thing, just because it's kind of funny. We were talking the other night with my brother and his his kids. And they were like, yeah, this is my, my brother's kids talking. He gets up at, he gets up in the middle of the night and he goes into another room and da-da-da-da-da. And Chloe, Chloe looks at me and goes, oh my God, you guys are so weird. <laughs> like, it's like a family, like that's the kind of, that's what I'm talking about. It's like, that's in the family, this kind of weird. You're yeah. wired. Whatever that is, we call it the Corrigan thing in, on that side of the family. But, you know, my mother's side, the May side had it too, which is more the witchy side. But that's a subject for another podcast. Uh, anyway, when we come back, our classic track, which is a Zwan track of a broken heart. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
all these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Let's see you smile 
Once in my life, if only to try together until I die of a broken heart, of a broken heart until I die of a broken heart, of a broken heart until. Welcome back, music fans. You just listened to Of a Broken Heart by Zwan off the Mary Star of the Sea album. Came out in 2003. And Billy, I listened to the song over and over and over again over the past couple of days. And I kind of broke down where I think it kind of comes from. Is the song about being with someone who you know is going to end up hurting you, sort of like in the way you would be having a relationship with a loved one, like a brother or a sister or a parent that has like a, a drug addiction? And you love them passionately, but you know that there's still that demon that's going to end up, it could have the strong potential of end up hurting you in the long run if they fall back into that. That's sort of the, the vibe that I got off of the song. That's pretty good, Joe. I give you high marks for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! Those San Antonio River walks are doing you well. Uh, <laughs> Joe, listen. <laughs> there you go. Come on down, um, I'll get you a bean and cheese. You know, the song came out of this on again, off again, relationship thing that I was in at the time. And it's that feeling of like, God, you're just going to kill me and kill me and kill me. I think that's where that first line comes from. If only I died just once in this life, like just kill me once, you know, just put me out of my misery. But as we know, in any torturous love relationship, and I use the word love loosely in this particular instance, when it's wrong, it's really wrong. And it just, you know, what's the the famous uh, Rod Stewart song? The first cut is the deepest, right? It just, it, the wound never heals and it just goes on and on and on. And you, and you, all your friends think you're crazy and all that stuff. So, yeah, I think I was sort of dealing with the existential idea of until I die of a broken heart, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this thing's just going to keep going on and on. The reason I picked this song today was because obviously, as I was saying before, I'm meditating a bit on loss, but also sort of the notion of writing and writing in this kind of atmosphere that I'm in 
it's not a sad atmosphere. It's a sort of a, just a contemplative one. And so I, my mind came around to this song because this is a perfect example of where I think this is a really good song. I think this is up there with some of the best stuff I've ever written. I felt that when I wrote it, I recorded it that way with the idea that it would do well in posterity. And it's one of those songs that just never really caught on. I begged the record company at the time to release it as a single. They refused. I literally begged, like, just put it out in Ames, Iowa. Just find a station. Just get one station to play it. I'll do anything that you ask. I'll go there and I'll do a personal appearance. Anything. Just give this song that one old school 1960s chance that if one DJ picks up on it and starts playing and the phones start ringing and da-da-da. And the record company said, no. (laughs) Just, no. Won't do it. And that's when you learn the hard math of uh, record companies and why they do what they do. And we could talk about that some other time. But yeah, so it was brutal because I thought, wow, this really should be the type of song that can give this record at the time, Mary Star of the Sea, a chance. And it sort of stalled. It came out of the gate strong. And once it stalled at around 300,000 copies, which still was a decent amount of records to sell, particularly for a new band, the record company just disappeared on me. All the money dried up in terms of promotional stuff. And then the band from that point of uh, time started to go south, not because of the record's failure in quotations, but more so because of the non-success didn't allow a false situation to continue. Where if it had been successful, I guess the false situation probably would have continued, but it would just ended at a different point of truth. Well, I mean, this song right now, it seems always, I don't know if it's just me being over emotional, but what you talked about this song and what it meant to you really hit me very hard. But also speaking of Zwan, I was always a big fan of Honestly. We just talked about Willy Wonka, Machines and all the things that put together. Different band, different vibe. I've read articles from you basically saying in interviews that like it was snake bit from the beginning. And I just want to get your take on creating something new. You go from Smashing Pumpkins to Zwan, which then segued into your your solo career for the most part. What was it like trying to have a new dynamic, a new Willy Wonka machine with Zwan? You know, in the beginning, it was a lot of fun because it was set up to be fun. Jimmy and I had always told ourselves a particular lie, which is like, well, if we find musicians that are more like how we are, meaning psychologically and musically, this thing should go better because we are always at odds on a certain level with James and Darcy in terms of lifestyle and their approach to music which, of course, in hindsight, was part of what created the greatness of the band. There was a tension between an intensity, which I would assign to Jimmy and I, and sort of a laissez-faire attitude and sort of a whimsy that Darcy and James brought to the table, which, if you look at the pumpkins, that's sort of the magical balance, and that's probably what created that Willy Wonka machine and let it be successful as long as it was, even though Uh, Behind the scenes, you know, there was a lot of strife, uh, well-documented, more so personally than musically. So Zwan was set up to be a, hey, let's have fun. Let's get some people around us that kind of think the way that we think. In all three cases of the other members, uh, non-SP, they were successful in their own right for doing their own stuff. So they had already kind of established themselves as songwriters or performers and stuff like that. And yeah, as long as the kind of the money flowed... And the party continued, that all seemed to go along. But ultimately, what it wound around to was the person that we knew best had brought in two people that were more aligned to him. And so it broke down, as bands do, into political factions. In this case, three versus two. And depending on the level of parting, sometimes four versus one, and I would be the one in that equation. Uh, My Willy Wonka machine, of course, in my mind, always winning. Once that started to fracture... 
And then here comes the pressure of making a major label uh, album. This would be my first record for Reprise, which was actually started by Frank Sinatra, speaking of Frank, as a subdivision. At that point, it was a subdivision of Warner Brothers. I, d- I think it might have been a subdivision of Warner Brothers from the beginning. I cannot remember. But it was a great thrill to be on Reprise. Jimi Hendrix was on Reprise. Neil Young had been on Reprise. So it was a, it was a, it was a legendary label. And when I came into the fold, there were still people there from the old school. So it was, a, it was an interesting situation. It turned out, speaking of sociopaths, I end up with the sociopath running the record label, whose name I will skip today, because I try not to be too too uh, namey, pointy. <laughs> but uh, that particular sociopath, of course, lied about a lot of things, and then the pressure of that, plus the pressure of the band sort of not seeing eye to eye, and then trying to make a major label debut. Uh, I remember band members uh, saying to me, and let's let's uh, for the sake of the story say this is not Jimmy Chamberlain talking saying like things like why is it got to be in tune why do we have to do it again so back to the Willy Wonka analogy I'm standing there Jimmy Chamberlain is somewhere in the in the vicinity we've at this point sold millions and millions of records and we're we're with other people who haven't sold millions of records and they're trying to tell us what makes a successful formula basically saying well the reason your band the pumpkins didn't work the way it should have was because you guys are too uptight see if you were sort of more like we are uh, this thing had rocked to this other level this magical level and they would point to bands where that had pulled itself off of course most of those examples didn't exist in any recent memory they were legendary bands from the 60s who through contrivance and the way people recorded in the 1960s were able to kind of pull that kind of laissez-faire thing off at a high level. So as the record went on, and I started to become more alarmed that this was not a serious endeavor, even though I'd spent a lot of money and put this thing together, and at that point had been together for probably getting close to two years, uh, had played gigs, had been out publicly talking about it, you know, had sort of put my foot in it, to use the old analogy. Now I'm in a situation, and that's where uh, my Willy Wonka machine took over, and I tried to kind of reel the record into something which is why for me, I oftentimes say that in many ways, the Zwan record is the great lost pumpkin record, because at the end of the day, even though it was the Zwan band that sort of put it together, the record that band would have made and should have made was when we were called Dejali Zwan, which was more acoustic and loose and more of a vibe. I would point friends and fans to a record by Humble Pie called Town and Country, I believe is the record. It's their second record. It's kind of got more of an acoustic kind of loose vibe, but it's really cool, great vibe. If we'd made that record and did that, it's kind of like let the band be a kind of a ramshackle kind of spur of the moment thing. I think it would have been fine. Would have been successful? Probably not, but it would have sort of been respectable and would have gone down just fine. But when the pressure kicked in, when the record label kicked in, when the money kicked in and my, you know, what was on the line, and I think even Jimmy Chamberlain at that time struggled to understand what I was going through, I sort of reeled the record back and started basically making a Smashing Pumpkins record. And I think when you look at songs, even like of a broken heart, and you put that into sort of like, if you can sort of do the mental exercise of picking some of the songs, not all the songs, but some of the songs on there, Heart Songs Comes to Mind as another Zwan song, Ride a Black Swan. If you listen to those songs and you just imagine that the pumpkins had continued, I think you can see very much so that it's basically a clandestine Smashing Pumpkins record albeit with other musicians, much like Oceania is a Smashing Pumpkins record with other musicians, but people see it as a Smashing Pumpkins record. So in my mind, over time, the Zwan music has become more and more, at least Mary Star of the Sea has become more and more of a Smashing Pumpkins thing, which is why we played some of those songs live through the years. 
And the additional material, which would come out of the box set, the more acoustic stuff, I think people will see has more to do with that group of musicians at that particular time. I've also seen the band referred to as the true poets of Zwan, and I've always wondered, what is Zwan? I know it's a Dutch word for dick, but I don't think you, knowing you, is where you went with that. No, I found these things out later. There's also a, 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 a form of spam called Zwan. You can literally buy Zwan in a can. <laughs> Nice. We actually thought about doing some kind of, that would be the album cover, like Zwan in a can, but then we thought we'd get sued. Honestly, the name came from, um, we were working at the time, it was just three of us at the time, in uh, Salt Lake City at a studio associated with Bjorn Thorsrud. My friend and engineer also passed away in recent times, so another loss. I guess Bjorn would have died about a year and a half, two years ago already now. Bjorn had a friend out there, Chuck, and Chuck had a studio high in the mountains overlooking Salt Lake, really beautiful. So we were up there for a, a period of time, and I was trying to come up with a band name. And I have pieces of paper where it's all kind of jotted down. I really wanted to name the band Swan, but there's a great band called The Swans. And I didn't want to be lame, like, well, it's different. This is Swan, and there were The Swans. You know, like, so I was like, oh, I really I really like The Swans. So I was like, something with swans. And even there's a lyric that I have um, from 33, Swans of Never. I even meditated on maybe using that name. And I thought, well, and then zero, because I love Zs because of the zero character. So if you can think about it in, in the way my weird Willy Wonka math works, by putting a Z on Swan and turning it into Zwan, it became Zero's subsequent band past Pumpkins. Perfect. Thank you for Perfect, sharing that. Perfect, but not really. I've always questioned that. <laughs> well, no. I mean, literally, I finally got an answer that I've wondered since this came out, since the first time I heard honestly. I was like, what in the blue hell is a Zwan? I, I like the name Dejali Zwan a lot better. I think we should have stuck with that. There's something about Dejali Zwan that I liked. Dejali being related to, to Disraeli. Benjamin, there was a Dejali somewhere in, in, in British politics because there was a Benjamin Disraeli, which Cream named Disraeli Gears after. There's some sort of version there that made sense in my brain circa 2002 or one. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm even thinking about putting the box set out under the Jajali's wand because I think when the when the box set comes out, you'll hear more of the band that I said should have been the band. And honestly, it should have been like a, a cheap lay band. It should have been a one-and-done band that Jimmy and I did and moved on into whatever we were going to do after that. Well, I'm a big fan of all of this, and i got to tell you again, it's amazing that as a, as a creator that you are able to touch on so many different aspects of music that can really just hit people on a certain level. And I think it comes down to that shared experience. We talked earlier in the pod today about the things that motivate you and the things that just connect Joe, your shower, Billy, just playing in the morning and hearing something, whatever that is, I think you have a, a great ability to tie into some sort of weird ethereal kind of just human connection. Because again, this song today specifically hit me on levels that I can't even begin to get to explain what I'm going through. And it just goes to show human experience is very much shared. And that if somebody's going through some things, you might actually be the thing that could help them get through that. Well, beautifully said, Kyle, as usual. I think that's a way to wrap it up. I can't top Kyle, and nor will I try. Uh, we'll see you again, friends, on the 33 Podcast. Thanks from my friends Joe and Kyle. We'll see you soon.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.